Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Europe economics editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to talk about how to tax multinational companies. We are going to ask the question, when companies operate in several countries, who should get to tax their profits and how much should that tax be? Should there be a minimum rate? Right now, more than 130 countries are trying to come up with answers to those big questions and they are edging towards a solution. On Saturday, June 5th, the G7 finance ministers agreed to push for a minimum tax of at least 15%. That's a necessary condition for a deal, but nowhere near enough. There is a lot more that still has to be agreed by a lot more countries. All will be explained. And to help us do that, we will hear from Sunita Jogarajan of Melbourne Law School. We'll also be joined briefly by Alex Parker of Law360, the newswire for business lawyers. We will be joined by Gabriel Zuckman, Professor of Economics at the University of Berkeley, California. And we'll hear from Joy Dubai, who is currently doing her PhD and has worked for various charities and advocacy groups on the topic of tax. To explain what's going on now, you have to understand the principles of a tax system that was set up a century ago. We asked Sunita Jagarajan what happened. So a hundred years ago, it was um, at the end of the First World War. So that was the environment that we were in. And so it was really a concern about countries needing capital to rebuild after the war. And the idea was that capital had to come from international investors. You needed cross-border investment. And the thinking at the time was that cross-border investment was not happening because of double taxation, that um, investors were being taxed in their home country as well as in the country where they invest. And, you know, they gave evidence that they were paying effective, effective tax rates of 70, 80, 90 percent on their cross-border investments. So that was the thinking, that cross-border investment is not happening because um, of double taxation. We need capital to rebuild. And so they had a problem. And in that time, how do you solve the problem? Refer it to the League. And um, so the League was charged um, with addressing the problem of double taxation. So the League of Nations, which is the predecessor to the United Nations, the UN, they commissioned a report. They assigned experts to come up with recommendations for what the ideal tax system should look like. And they had various different choices for for how to tax profits. You can either tax profits based on the market. So where are sales happening? Maybe the the governments where the biggest markets are should get the most taxing rates. Or maybe you want to allocate taxing rights to the source or where profits are actually made. Maybe they deserve some. Uh, Or you could allocate taxing rights to the country of residence. So that's where the company is actually headquartered. So there are these three options. And the problem is that there isn't obviously one that is better than the others. You can come up with reasons to go with all three. 
you could go for market-based taxation. So that's where the sales happen on the grounds that, you know, well, it's it's really the consumers that are contributing to the profits. You don't make any profits you don't, if you don't have any sales. Alternatively, you could justify source-based taxation by saying, well, the, the company benefits from infrastructure where they make stuff. Uh, maybe we want to encourage governments to be friendly, to create good business environments. Uh, so maybe it makes sense for companies to pay taxes to wherever the production happens um, as a kind of payment for the services they've had. Alternatively, you could go for residency-based taxation, so where the company is is headquartered. And you might want to do that if, you know, as, the, as a country that has a lot of headquarters of, of companies that have expanded overseas, you might think, hey, those are our companies. Um, we, you know, we're the reason that they're doing so well. We are the uh, ones that provided the legal system for them, provided them with the, the, the foundations for their business. And so we should get to tax whatever they make overseas. And also, hey, we're the big rich countries that that have all these headquartered companies and turns out we're the ones writing the rules. Uh, yeah. So those options are all, all pretty exciting, but it seems it wasn't a completely blank slate. Here's Anita. Yeah, so this is the thing about the league's work. Even though, you know, they had this clean slate, they were asked to look at it um, afresh, you know, they started off by asking the academics to look at it as a new issue in the end, because you had government experts involved and these were government experts who were involved in things in their own countries and there were already tax treaties at the time, uh, what I think is particularly unfortunate is the League just went with what already existed. So countries had already agreed tax treaties that had were residents and source that had this shared taxing thing and... You know, from my research, the League's experts were all about trying to maintain the status quo because it was this thinking, and and there's arguments for it, it was this thinking that if we do something that's familiar, then countries will come on board, right? Because if you do something that's completely new, that no one's heard of, you're not going to get countries to be involved. And their number one goal was to get countries to be involved in this work. The lesson here is that a half-baked status quo can be a really powerful influence over what comes next. Change is really hard. Other really important things to remember, particularly for the, the trade geeks listening, is that these recommendations basically became the model for a ton of bilateral treaties. The international tax system is not like the international trading system. There's no big multilateral tax deal, which which everyone signs up to. Instead, there's a set of principles or, or norms that have been baked into more than 3,000 double tax agreements. It's super messy. So what are these principles then that the League of Nations recommended and that ultimately got set into these thousands of tax treaties? Who gets to tax profits? And the answer is, of course, that it is very, very complicated. But essentially, it's a balance. So if you remember those three options, there's the the source country, so where profits are made. They get some taxing rights. 
And then there's also the country of residence, where the company is headquartered. And under these principles, they got some taxing rights too. For different kinds of income, there are slightly different rules, but but roughly speaking, there's a balance between those two. And if, say, you had a multinational headquartered in the U.S. with a profitable subsidiary in, say, Ireland, then that company will pay taxes both to the American and Irish governments, the resident and source countries. But if you've been paying attention, you'll see that something's missing. Under this system, the market country does not get any taxing rights. So if that multinational sells stuff profitably to the UK, sorry guys, the UK government can't touch those profits. You can apply tariffs if you really wanted to, but not corporation taxes. There are two more important principles that that we should highlight that were settled a century ago. One says, okay, let's tax profits according to where the profits were made, but then we need a way of working out where exactly those profits are taxable. How do you allocate profits between different affiliates of a company? A company can have lots of different affiliates making profits in different places. And the decision was to say, first, for an affiliate to generate profits in a particular place, it has to have a substantial degree of physical presence in that country. So you have to have employees or maybe an office or a factory in that place. And you can see where that might make sense. You you probably want to avoid governments trying to tax profits of companies that just genuinely don't do anything there. Um, so that was the, the necessary condition for, for being able to tax a company for making profits in, in your country. The other really important thing they decided was to use something called transfer pricing and the arm's length principle. Instead of looking at companies as the sum of all their affiliates, they decided to treat affiliates separately and to tax them each, assuming that each affiliate was a separate company. Let's unpack that. So suppose you have a multinational company that is making profits in multiple places. You essentially need to work out how much profit is being generated in each place. And they decided, let's treat these affiliates separately and tax them as though they're separate companies buying and selling to and from each other. Uh, And so then the transfer prices are used by tax lawyers to calculate the value of stuff being bought and sold between affiliates. So the arm's length principle says that those prices have to be equivalent to the ones that you would see if the companies were actually separate companies altogether, not owned by the same parent company, not part of the same multinational, as though they were operating on the open market. To go through an example, suppose you've got a multinational making cars with an affiliate making the the parts in the United States and an affiliate in Mexico that then assembles them. Under these principles, the assembling affiliate is going to have some revenue coming in from, from selling the cars, but it's going to have costs associated with getting the inputs from its Mexican affiliate. Under these principles, for tax purposes, they're going to have to value those costs assuming that the parts could have come from any part supplier and not the one in its sister affiliate. This all sounds very complicated, and it is. But the headline is that multinationals are taxed based on a combination of where they report making their profits, which requires a physical presence, 
and where they're headquartered, but not based on where they make their sales. And their tax bill is is calculated treating their affiliates in different countries separately, based on prices that are supposed to be equivalent to the ones you'd see on the open market. So that's the system, and it's pretty much been in place for 100 years. And 100 years is a long time. And over that time, some problems have begun to emerge. Basically, companies have been able to game the system to pay less tax than governments and and their voters want them to pay. Now, remember, companies' tax bill depends partly on the source of their profits or where they say that those profits are being made. And that gives companies quite a bit of flexibility. They can move the source of their profits, so so factories and workers, to low-tax places. And in some cases, they can do some funky accounting so that on paper, they've essentially moved the source of their profits to tax havens. Here is Gabriel Zuckman. The main problem with the the current system of international taxation is that there is widespread profit shifting by multinational companies to tax havens. So what this means is that it's very easy today for big companies to produce stuff in the US, in Germany, in China, and then at the end of the day to pretend that their profits have been made in Ireland or in Bermuda, where the corporate tax rate is 0%, uh, and in other low-tax places. There are a few ways that this profit shifting can happen. One is through manipulating transfer prices. There, the aim is to make costs in in high-tax places look bigger and reported profits, therefore, there look look smaller. And revenues in low-tax places look bigger while the reported profits there also look bigger. Here's Gabrielle again. The way the system is supposed to work is that companies are supposed to exchange goods and services internally, as, as if their different subsidiaries were uh, unrelated independent entities. So for instance, when you know, Apple Ireland exports iPhones to Apple Germany, in principle, Apple needs to charge the actual price of, of the iPhone for this intra-group transaction. But once you've understood this, you can very easily understand the problem. The problem is that because the tax rate is way lower in Ireland than in Germany, there is an incentive for Apple to charge a very high price for this transaction, to sell the iPhone at a very high price to Apple Germany. Why? Because, you know, that means the Irish subsidiary is going to make very large profits, very big profits, taxed at a low rate, and the German subsidiary is, go- is not going to make much profits. And so this shifts profits out of uh, Germany to Ireland. And so this illustrates one key way in which multinational companies shift their profits to tax havens. This is known as manipulating transfer prices. To be clear, Trade Talks is not accusing Apple specifically of manipulating its transfer prices, but but this is the kind of manipulation that the system incentivizes, and it, it does happen. Another way of shifting profits to low-tax places is through intra-group borrowing. So basically, the high-taxed affiliate 
borrows from the low-tax affiliate, and then the interest payments lower reported profits and the overall tax bill in that higher tax place. The other way to do it is by the affiliate in the low-tax place taking on loads of risk and essentially being compensated by the higher-tax affiliate. That way, the, the low-tax affiliate gets lots of revenue, they get compensated, um, they get lots of profits, and so they pay a very low tax rate on those profits. And with all of this, you're basically shifting the tax bill from the high-tax place to the low-tax place. And the third and perhaps the most important channel is the strategic location of intangibles in tax havens. So, again, a simple example is useful. The most striking example is the case of, I think, uh, Google. In 2003, just a few months before being listed as a public company, Google moved uh, some of its most valuable intangible assets, some of its search and advertisement technology, to its own affiliate in Bermuda. And so what happens then is that this Bermuda company sells the, the right to use uh, Google's intellectual property to the various Google affiliates all over the world. So Google Germany has to pay royalties to Google Bermuda. Google France has to pay royalties to Google Bermuda to have the right to use the Google technology. And these royalty payments, they again, shift profits out of France, out of Germany, to Bermuda. In 2019, Google Bermuda recorded almost $20 billion in revenue from all these royalty payments. And this shifting of profits through the location of intangibles in tax havens has been on the rise and is something that all companies can do, you know, no matter their sector. You know, you see that also in the pharmaceutical industry, you see that in finance, even in manufacturing. So, for instance, the famous Nike logo apparently is, is booked and owned by a subsidiary somewhere in the, in the Caribbean. And uh, so today, that, that's, that's the most important uh, issue. We should say that Google has since shifted its intellectual property, so it's now held in the United States. But again, it illustrates the incentives in the system. Companies get taxed on the source of their profits. So the obvious incentive is to put the source of profits wherever has the lowest tax rate. And that's really easy when you're moving intangible assets. So things that aren't physical things like, like factories. And in the modern economy, those intangible assets, brands, algorithms, trade secrets, that kind of thing, they have become more and more important. The question everyone should have by now is, how much money are we talking about here? And I should say up front that it's really hard to estimate. You need to make a lot of very strong assumptions, essentially about where profits would be if you didn't have profit shifting. Thomas Torslav, Ludwig Vier, and, and Gabrielle tried to do it in a working paper titled The Missing Profits of Nations. And they estimated that almost 40% of profits reported outside of multinationals' country of residence was actually being shifted. We asked a very simple question, which is, what would happen if all countries had the exact same effective corporate income tax rate? 
imagine that tomorrow there was a, a full international tax harmonization. How would the location of profits and the location of production, the capital stock, change? And we were very surprised by the findings. What we found is that the location of paper profits would change enormously. That is, uh, today's low tax countries like Ireland, like Singapore, like Bermuda, would see a dramatic reduction in their profits. And today's high tax countries would see a significant increase. Most importantly, um, continental European countries, think, you know, Germany, France, Spain, Italy, would, would see an increase in, in their tax base of about 20%. And um, today's tax havens would see a decline in their tax base of around 50%, sometimes, sometimes more. So paper profits are very mobile today. And so if incentives to, to move paper profits across countries changed, then the, the, the geography of profits would change considerably. What would not change as much is the location of the geography of capital. So yes, it's true that in, in places like Ireland and other low tax places, these countries have been able to attract some capital, factories, headquarters, because of their low tax rates. But quantitatively, this has been much less important than their ability to attract paper profits. So that if the, the tax rate of Ireland was harmonized with the tax rate of other countries, yeah, some activity would move out of Ireland, but it would not be, if you, if you look at tax havens globally, the mobility of capital is an order of magnitude lower than the mobility of paper profits. So multinational companies shift around $700 billion in, in paper profits each year. And, and they move capital to low tax places, but the implied change in the location of profits is, is one of the magnitude smaller, uh, smaller than that. Uh, so that was an, an interesting and, and quite surprising finding. Another finding we had is that um, we found that U.S. multinationals are particularly aggressive when it comes to using uh, tax havens. So if you try to you know, allocate the global amount of shifted profits, $700 billion each year, to... Uh, the parent companies. So are they U.S. multinationals? Are they German multinationals or French multinationals that these companies that cheat profits to tax havens? You know, where, where are they headquartered? And we found that about 50% of the globally shifted profits are shifted by U.S. multinationals and about 25, 30% by, by EU uh, multinationals. But, you know, by, by far the the, the most aggressive multinationals are U.S. multinationals. And it's not, sometimes people have a view that this is mostly a phenomenon uh, in the tech industry. And it's true that you have a number of prominent cases that involve companies like Alphabet, like Apple and Facebook. But in fact, profit shifting seems to be an across the board phenomenon. So that is, you look at the pharmaceutical sector, you look at finance, you look at manufacturing, 
Yeah, companies in all these sectors, they do book profits in tax havens. All this shifted profit means that governments in places like the US, France or Germany, they get to tax less profit than they otherwise would. The estimates in that paper suggest that that reduces the corporation tax rate by roughly 10%. There are other estimates out there. In 2015, the OECD estimated that all of this very legal profit shifting, all of that reduced corporation tax receipts by between 4 and 10%. That's between $100 and $240 billion. That's profit shifting. But there's another way that the system basically leaked tax. When companies can shift the source of their profits to wherever has the lowest tax rate, governments have an incentive to offer the lowest tax rate to try to attract them. So governments feel like they have to offer lower and lower tax rates to pull in foreign investment, and the result is a race to the bottom. This race to the bottom has been happening for decades. In 1985, the average headline corporation tax rate was 49%. In 2018, it was 24%. And that decline has happened across the distribution of countries in low, middle, and high-income countries. Now, not all of that was was pure tax competition. There was also an ideological shift towards lower tax rates, just the, the sense that it was a good thing to do. But countries definitely felt the pressure. Uh, it's harder to maintain a higher tax rate when everyone else is dropping theirs. Now, from the perspective of these low, very, very low tax places, they're just exercising their sovereignty. They're drawing in investment in one of the few ways that they have. They don't have big markets, so they have to attract companies other ways. But other countries feel that their sovereignty is being undermined. They don't have as much power to set the tax rates that they want and raise the revenue that they want. There have been campaigns to reform this tax system for years. There were discussions in 2013 There was the 2013 Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Project, where essentially a bunch of governments came together at the OECD and said, we need some new rules. But what they were trying to do was make the existing system better. They were trying to close the most egregious loopholes. They weren't going for very fundamental reform. And so they they reached an agreement in 2015, great, thumbs up, um, did some really important things like more information sharing. But because they weren't going for this really deep reform, there were certain problems, the ones that we've just described, that were left unfixed. And as well as these unsolved problems, what you saw is countries starting to take matters into their own hands. Uh, essentially unilateral action in the absence of a, of a broader deal. So in some cases, there were governments who essentially thought multinational companies were shifting profits too aggressively, and they started effectively demanding corrections. So these are called diverted profits taxes. Uh, so the UK, Australia um, has one. And, and as you can imagine, from the perspective of the multinationals, dealing with all of this, this is not fun at all. You can see that it's it's better to have some kind of coordination, some new rules, rather than governments deciding in an ad hoc um, and uncertain way um, when they think that tax bills need to be increased. The other thing that governments have been doing, especially recently, is applying unilateral digital services taxes, or, or DSTs. 
And these are the ones primarily against the big internet companies. The French <laughs> went really hard on theirs. They actually called it the, the GAFA tax for Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. And they were framed as a way of making these big tech companies pay their fair share. Here's Alex Parker. Whether or not the digital service taxes are the right solution, there's little question that it sort of forced the OECD to come back, to bring everyone back on the table and try and do another project about this. Um, and in some sense, it may have forced the U.S. to begin to contemplate measures that they wouldn't have before, just because the digital service taxes were obviously going to be happening and they would you know, not be good for these U.S. companies. And so the digital service taxes definitely have forced everyone back to the bargaining table. There are different ways of framing this. You can frame the digital services taxes as evidence that the status quo is just politically unsustainable. But you can also see this from the US perspective, how they were drawn to the table, where essentially they were looking at other countries trying to grab tax revenue from the big tech companies uh, and it was just increasingly obvious that the system is unstable. There are now 139 countries trying to come up with a common solution to this problem, and they're hoping to get a deal in July. 139 countries is a lot. That's good. I think the OECD has tried to run a, a pretty inclusive process here, even if doing so in practice is, is really, really hard. But the thing to remember is that this is a very, very diverse group. Everyone has got different interests. There are two big things on the table. Technocrats call them Pillars 1 and 2. Pillar 1 would be a fundamental reallocation of taxing rights towards market countries. So that's where these companies are making their sales. That's for the first time governments would get the right to tax companies based on the value of sales in those countries. It would be a massive deal. Pillar two would be a minimum corporation tax rate. Now, not everyone has to sign up to that minimum, but if they don't, then they accept that some other government is going to tax up to the difference, so the company is going to face the minimum rate anyway. That would also be a really massive deal. Let's start with the first pillar, so this reallocation of, of who gets the tax what. The idea is that you'll calculate companies' profits for the multinational as a whole. So say you've got Alphabet or Microsoft. Their profits will be aggregated across all of their affiliates. Then you'll say this much will get taxed pretty much as it is, but this slice will have taxing rights at reallocated according to where the company is making its sales. And the idea here is that consumers are, are harder to shift around than the source of profits, so it will be harder for companies to game the system. You can't up and move consumers and, and put them all in Bermuda. So the hope is that this will reduce the funny business in the way that the profits are being reported. And this should then benefit the big market economies, the ones that aren't the tax havens and aren't residents to that many multinationals. The idea is that corporations can be taxed by a government even if they have no physical presence in a, in a country. That's supposed to deal with all these digital companies that can serve markets remotely. Under the old rules, if a company doesn't have a physical presence, tax treaties tend to say that governments cannot tax them. 
The idea is that only the biggest and most profitable companies would be affected, and more than just the big tech giants. This would be a, a broader general deal. Though it is true that the the companies affected, perhaps the hundred biggest companies, they would be disproportionately American companies. But it wouldn't be kind of explicitly discriminatory by saying only the tech guys. Um, and what's going on here is that the Americans are saying to the rest of the world, fine, you can tax our tech giants, but not in a way that is just nakedly discriminatory. Um, and also, in exchange, we want something from you. We want you to drop your digital services taxes. Oh, and, and that minimum tax would be nice as well. But you see America gives something, it gets something, and, and you can start to see how a deal could be done. But there is a huge, huge amount of detail that has not been agreed yet. For example, it is unclear which companies exactly will be in the scope of the reallocation. It's not clear if financial services companies will be included. Um, the, the proposal was for the biggest and most profitable companies to be caught up, maybe the biggest hundred. Now, that would be using numbers like a, a revenue threshold of 20 billion euros. but the definition of, of profitable isn't yet clear, and that can really matter. You can have different companies caught up depending on the, the definition of profitability that you use. And remember, in the negotiations ahead, everyone is going to try to make sure that their national champion isn't included uh, in this reallocation. There's also the question of how you deal with businesses that are not consumer-facing. Suppose you want to allocate taxing rights according to where companies are making their sales. Well, well, what if companies are selling to other companies? What if those companies that they're selling to are just located in the Cayman Islands? Surely that's a problem. I asked Gabriel about this. So the, uh, the main conceptual issue with uh, sales apportionment is the problem of sales to independent resellers located in low-tax places. So to be very concrete, you could imagine that there would be a business where uh, a company would specialize in buying iPhones from Apple and reselling those iPhones for a tiny margin to the final customers. And if, you know, if that company was incorporated in Bermuda, then Apple would make all its sales to this independent reseller in Bermuda, so all its sales would be allocated to a tax haven, and then everything would be resold from Bermuda to Germany to France, and so the system would not work. But, so it's, 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 a, it's, it's true that this is a conceptual problem, but there are you know, easy solutions to that problem. The easiest solution is for government to disregard the sales made to customers located in low-tax places. Basically to say, okay, we're going to apportion your global profits, but ignoring sales that you pretend making in Bermuda or in low-tax places. And we're going to do as if this didn't exist, which is equivalent to reassigning those sales to high-tax places. So that's one way. Another way would be to say, Oh, in my, my example of Apple selling all its stuff to a, a, an independent reseller in Bermuda, the government could simply say, well, look, if all your sales are intermediated through 
this company. In fact, it is as if this company is part of Apple and should be consolidated, and, and so all these intra-group sales should be ignored. So that's another solution. And the last thing I would mention on this is sales apportionment already exists. This is how U.S. states, California, New Jersey, New York, operate today. They have a, their own state corporate tax, which comes in addition to the federal income tax, corporate tax. And so the way it works today is, for instance, California looks at Coca-Cola and they say, okay, Coca-Cola, if you've made 10% of your sales in California, then 10% of your profits are taxable in California. And this system has been in place for a long time and it works well. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it works much better than the current system of international taxation, which is totally broken. It's also unclear how much profit will be in the scope of the reallocation and how exactly the the slice of profits to, to have the taxing rights reallocated, how exactly that will be calculated. The, the sort of dominant proposal at the moment seems to be that what you'll do is you'll add up everyone's profits and then you'll say, okay, well, we've got a 10% profitability rate that's fine. That's basically going to be taxed according to the status quo. And then above that, we've got what we're going to term residual profits or, or excess profits. Um, and of that excess, we're going to reallocate the right to tax 20%. So it's a slice of this excess profit that will reallocate the right to, to tax. Now, those numbers are up for debate, um, the, the 10% and the, and the 20%. Um, and also not all countries are on board. The, the African Tax Administration Forum, which is a, a group of African tax administrations, they suggested that instead of having this this routine profit level and then this share of the excess, there'd just be a reallocation of the right to tax all profits, a share, a share of all the profits. And that way you don't need to keep the old complicated transfer pricing rules to establish where the routine amount is and, and, and where the excess is. We asked Joy Dubay to explain some of the concerns held by poor countries in these talks. The two concerns with the Pillar 1 proposals are the complexity. Um, so when it comes to complexity, the OECD have uh, recommended three amounts, and they want to look at the residual profits of the multinational group. And arriving at these residual profits will be extremely difficult. It will require some consultations, again, around how to apportion these profits across jurisdictions. Um, and the reason why there are problems with residual profit in particular is we are still reliant on transfer pricing rules. And for quite some time, developing countries and civil society have also argued that the transfer pricing rules are not fit for form. They're not very useful. They already had their own inherent complexities. And so we are combining two extremely complex processes to come up with um, what, what is now amounting to pillar one. The second concern has to do with the amount of revenue that ultimately smaller jurisdictions will realize from this proposal. And this has best been articulated by the Africa Tax Administrators Forum, who have expressed concerns about the ability of African countries to realize significant profits or revenue from this particular proposal. And really what it is about is um, using residual profits is unlikely to provide very much for market jurisdictions that have 
much lesser factors like users and customers if we use those factors, right? Um, and we we now need to look at total profits rather than residual profits. And I think this is a, an important argument and a, an important area of focus because we're moving away from using transfer pricing to determine the residual profits. Poor countries are particularly dependent on corporation tax revenues, mainly because they raise less revenue from, from other types of tax. So this really matters to them. Now, in a way, if you think there are fundamental problems with transfer pricing, the incentive just can't work, then it is strange to say, hey, let's just use it to allocate the right to tax some profits and only reform the, the right to tax a slice of the excess profit. Now, I have a lot of sympathy with that. Um, the issue is really political. It's essentially a non-starter for the bigger, richer countries that benefit more from the status quo. So from their perspective, this reallocation is it's only really meant to apply to the excess profits, the crazy high profits that you tend to see associated with, with companies with lots of intangible assets. Not to all profits, and essentially, the issue is that you have some countries that are very reliant on corporation income tax from a very few national champions. And, and they're worried that a more fundamental reallocation would just be very disruptive and lead to a sort of sudden shift or shock uh, in their revenues and, and not in their favor. That's a political argument. Um, the The economic argument that you should go for something neater. <laughs> um, and you should really be just considering divvying up the right to tax all profits, um, I I think is a good one. It is true that, that the way the talks are going, this reallocation really wouldn't raise all that much revenue. The OECD impact assessment published last September suggested it might raise five to $12 billion in, in revenue. The Biden administration proposed a slightly different version with the idea that it would raise about the same amount that's really not very much, especially when you divide it up among 139 countries. And there really are lots more massive unanswered questions. The Americans, for example, want there to be some kind of way of resolving tax disputes that is that is binding so that companies get tax certainty. But developing countries are not happy about that at all. It's it's seen as an affront to their sovereignty. Um, and I think underlying that is the the fear that they would be on the losing end too often. They would be told, nope, your, your tax decision is wrong. You have to retract that. The Americans also want some kind of pledge from other countries to drop their digital services taxes and not introduce different, slightly varied ones. And the issue is that you have to come up with some language. You have to come up with some pledge. You know, I will not introduce a digital services tax in future. But how do you define a digital services tax? If the language is, is too broad, then you really start restricting government's flexibility, sovereignty, etc. But if it's too narrow, then other countries just carry on introducing unilateral measures through the back door. And then the question for the U.S. Congress is, well, hang on, why should we be handing over taxing rights if other countries aren't going to give us what we wanted, if they're not going to pull their digital services taxes? Then there's the question of who loses their right to tax. So you, the idea is that you want to allocate the right to tax based on where companies make their sales. But 
who's going to lose their right? Where does that right get allocated from? Uh, you can't just write down a list of tax havens that you don't like. Um, it's going to need to be principles-based. And that means that some non-tax havens could end up losing some taxing rights, and you can bet that they will resist that. Any reallocation is really hard. It's basically a a zero-sum game. You also really need all countries to agree. Otherwise, companies are going to find themselves in the middle of of multiple attempts to, to tax the same slice of profit. What's going to happen is that they're going to be taxed, and they're not going to get a tax credit for the tax they paid in a foreign country. And you also need multilateral agreement so that you can override all of those thousands and thousands of bilateral tax treaties. So yeah, we need a multilateral deal. And, you know, I've been watching the WTO for long enough to to be aware that occasionally multilateral agreements can be a little bit tricky. Um, We will see how this one goes. Uh, Yeah. But now let's talk about pillar two, the minimum tax, the one getting all the headlines, probably because it's a bit easier to explain but also because, as the proposals stand, this is the bigger one. It raises much more revenue. Yep, it's much bigger. The OECD has estimated that a minimum tax could raise corporate tax revenues by 2.7%, and that's excluding the United States, which already has a, a sort of minimum tax. The basic idea is to say, hey, those 0% corporate tax rates are kind of harmful, They distort incentives and mean that countries that want to raise revenue face pressure to reduce their rates. So let's all agree on a minimum tax. The Biden administration had proposed 21% as that rate, but now they've gone down to at least 15%. That level of ambition of at least 15%, that was the one that was endorsed by those G7 countries on Saturday, June 5th. The idea with this minimum tax is that it applies to big multinationals. So the the main proposal is for uh, those companies with revenue above 750 million euros. And the minimum tax will apply within each jurisdictional or place. So supposing you have a company with affiliates in Ireland, Bermuda, France, Britain, And essentially, if their effective tax rate on their profits within those places is less than the agreed minimum rate, then some government, as part of this deal, will have the right to top it up. So that essentially means that there's no point in even offering those companies a low tax rate as someone else will just take the revenue anyway. This was the one Gabriel was really excited about. The reason why minimum taxation is so important is because it can really change the face of globalization. Why? Because today, firms can reduce taxes very significantly by booking profits to low-tax places. Okay, now imagine there was a minimum tax, meaning if Apple books profits in Ireland taxed at 5%, the U.S. would collect the missing 16% to arrive at 21%. And imagine other countries did the same. What would happen is that it would become pointless for companies to book profits in Ireland in the first place. They would keep paying low taxes there, but that would be offset by higher taxes owed in the parent country. 
knowing that the tax havens themselves wouldn't have incentives anymore to offer to offer low tax rates. And so you would see them start to increase their tax rate. Basically, because otherwise it would mean leaving money on the table for, for the US or Germany to grab. And so you would see Ireland, you would see Bermuda, you would see tax havens increasing their tax rate. And you would get to a de facto tax harmonization like this. And you would change the nature of globalization in the sense that the current form of globalization is characterized by tax competition, a very negative form of international competition that benefits only few actors in the economy. So you'd basically end this race to the bottom. You'd say, look, there is no value in competing. And so governments might start to feel more comfortable about lifting their their corporate tax rates. This is a hugely powerful idea. And it's amazing how it's gone from being super controversial to maybe part of an agreement this summer. Before, there were concerns that this could really impinge on on national sovereignty. There was a sense that you shouldn't be telling other countries how they should run their tax systems. And that really changed on the U.S. side when the Trump administration did a tax reform and applied something sort of similar here in the United States. And so now here we are. Now, it's not completely straightforward to agree a minimum tax. There are various different interests at play. Obviously, this completely screws up tax havens business model. Um, They would not like a higher minimum tax as that would erode their advantage, at least when it comes to hosting big multinational companies. We asked Joy about the concerns from developing countries. The concerns for developing countries are especially focusing on investment incentives. At the start of the 2019 debate, we had the ministries of uh, the ministers of finance for the African Union have a meeting, and uh, they concluded that they would not want to remove their right to decide upon introducing incentives. And that was a very clear statement that they also shared with ATAF. And so ATAF have been very much aware of the needs of their member countries. So what we might also need, aside from this debate on minimum taxes, is greater um, discussion, policy engagement with our investment policymakers to understand that taxation is not the only means through which to attract investment. You know, we have political stability, infrastructure, education, you know, and so on and so on. And these factors have been recognized by a multitude of organizations writing about the use of tax incentives. So so there needs to be, I think, wider recognition about the challenges of developing countries when it comes to this debate, but also the impact of this debate on their economies. The final issue that's been brought up by ATAF numerous times is the use of thresholds that are extremely high and not realistic for smaller economies. The current thresholds recommended are around 750 million. What should what what could possibly work is 250 million euros. However, um, it focuses very much on the larger corporations. And I mean, the the challenge of misuse of incentives and tax avoidance is not just with the larger corporations. We also now gradually need to focus on, you know, the entire taxpayer base that's dealing in tax avoidance. So again, there are questions about which countries would be in scope. On the tax incentives point, Obviously, part of the point of the the minimum tax is that it would hand policymakers the power to say no when a company came asking for some sort of special tax deal. 
In poorer countries, those tax incentives can be vehicles for corruption. Obviously, that's not good. But clearly, there are concerns about what this would mean. And small, poorer countries often don't have the capacity to do detailed impact assessments of the impact of of this type of reform on their economy. And those impact assessments need to be done because some real economic changes are likely to happen, and they need to be able to anticipate what those are going to be. There are some other challenges. So one is agreeing the the order of the top-up, essentially. So the way the minimum tax has been proposed, it's resident countries that would be first in line if a company's tax rate were to fall below the minimum rate. So supposing you had a multinational with a headquarters in uh, France and there was an affiliate in Bermuda that was paying less than the minimum rate – then the French government, as the country of of the headquarters, they would have the priority. They could go in first and say, hey, we're going to increase that rate to the minimum of at least 15%. Then, if the French government didn't want to do that, then maybe other countries could could come in. Um, But there's a question of whether it should be the, the, the resident country. Should it not actually be the source country or even the market country. There are different interests there. Now, given the power dynamics, I would have thought that it was probably going to end up as the residents' countries, just because big, rich countries tend to get their way. Um, But there are many countries who will not be happy with that outcome. And, you know, we don't know how exactly tax rates would respond. So it's possible that Bermuda would say, oh, okay, fine, we'll just increase our rate to the minimum. Um, but if they don't, then obviously that ordering benefits those those countries. It benefits the countries with lots of multinationals headquartered there. So places like the US, Britain, Germany, France, Japan. Um, so there's going to be this fight over who should get that spot, that first spot in the queue. What should be the order of the queue? Now, you hear this argument that this doesn't really matter because governments will just increase their tax rates, so companies won't ever face a rate below the minimum. There won't be anything to top up. Um, And then the counter-argument is, well, if that's true, then fine. Just let the source countries take that spot then if it's it's so meaningless. Um, Yeah, we'll we'll see how that plays out. Like the reallocation of, of taxing rights in Pillar 1, agreeing on the minimum tax in Pillar 2 could also be really tricky. There is a difference, though, that that countries can go unilaterally and apply a minimum rate on resident companies, so sort of like what the United States just did. So if the OECD talks do crash and burn, maybe we'll see governments doing just that. Maybe. There are some obstacles, though. Um, I think the place where you'd most expect to see that minimum tax applied would be from within the EU. But there's this big problem with intra-EU dynamics. There's this real desire to move multilaterally, or else it's going to be really difficult to overcome resistance from the likes of Ireland and, and Hungary, which themselves have very low tax rates. And so essentially there's an attempt to say, well, look, let's use this global deal that can apply pressure. If the OECD talks crash and burn, um, there is a chance that at some stage the EU could shift. So it could essentially outvote those problem countries. That's, That's being threatened essentially as a last resort. But for now, they really want to move together. 
Um, and, and that actually probably is the thing that forced the Biden administration to lower its ambitions. They really wanted a 21% minimum tax, and that got lowered to at least 15%. And I think a big contributor to that was was the political realities in the EU. Um, 21% was just too high for the havens there. So there's, there's a real constraint um, that's applying. I'll be watching that for sure. Next up is the, the G20 and negotiations at the inclusive framework there should, should really heat up. And hopefully there will be a deal in July. Hopefully, because I think as we'll all agree, this is one of the longest Trade Talks episodes ever and I have not got the emotional strength to do another one. Right. But even after there is potentially a huge deal at the OECD, a high-level deal, it could take years to implement. You could also end up with some countries not implementing what is agreed. The U.S. Congress can be pretty tricksy, uh, so it's possible that the U.S. signs up to something in principle and then doesn't follow through with all the details. But hey, we are trade people. We are battered by years of disappointment. Uh, We keep our expectations low. But, you know, if listeners, if you want to have some hope, then good on you. I have hope. But with that, I think we should wrap it up. A huge thank you to Sunita Jagarajan at Melbourne Law School, to Alex Parker of Law360, the, the newswire for business lawyers, to Gabrielle Zuckman, professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley, and to Joy Dubai at the Institute for Austrian and International Tax Law. Thanks to everyone I spoke to who I will not name. Thank you to the people at the OECD, the negotiators, the tax experts. I am so grateful to all of you. Do check out my pieces on The Economist. They're on my Twitter feed. And thanks, as always, to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. 